Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We finish off our sermon series this Sunday that has been going through the Songs of Ascent. These are the 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, that were part of Israel's pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you have to remember, we talked about this in the first couple of weeks, people did not go on vacation in the ancient world. They didn't just go to the beach, spend a couple of weeks traveling Europe. The only time they took vacation was for the annual festivals, tabernacles in the fall, Passover in the spring, and you often couldn't do it if, it, if you were financially struggling. But when you did, when you went as a family, it wasn't just your immediate family going to Jerusalem. It was your entire extended family, all of your cousins, and the entire village all traveling for a couple of days. If you were a kid in the ancient world, you would have looked forward to those pilgrimage festivals as the greatest point of any year because you knew that you could stay up as late as you wanted. You'd be spending the night in another friend's tent and then eating with these other people and mixing. And it's why Jesus got lost when he was a 12-year-old and his family had gone to Jerusalem. They just thought he was with the rest of the family, the rest of the extended family heading back to Nazareth. And it's within that context that the psalmist writes Psalm 133, talking about how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He's talking about that idea of what it would look like when everyone was gathered, they weren't stressed about work, they were heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord and to eat and drink and just enjoy life together. And the wording that he uses is how good and pleasant it is. That word good means complete. God says that he, in Genesis 1, he made the trees and it was good. Made the animals, it was good. It both means wonderful, great, but also complete. Things as they are meant to be. Good and pleasant. And that word pleasant is a, is a musical term. It's harmonious, melodious. If you think about music has a powerful effect on all of us. We all love certain sounds and songs. And there's certain music that can just transport you somewhere else mentally. I remember being in college, taking a class on Beethoven, and towards the end of the semester, the, the 80-year-old professor had us listen to a piece by Beethoven that's not that well-known called the Missa Solemnis. And he talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, and then he said, for the final 20 minutes, we're just going to listen to the fifth piece, the fifth movement. And the whole class was silently listening. And the song was just amazing. I'd never heard it before. And it just ended, and he walked out. And all these smart aleck college kids were just dumbfounded by Beethoven's music. That is what good brother and sister relationships are like. When family is dwelling together well, when the relationships are spreading deeply and widely and fully. He goes on to say, 
It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And at this point, it sounds a little strange, honestly. I have a, a friend who used to always keep an extra shirt in his office because he was afraid of the oil running down on his beard and on the shirt. He knew if he went to lunch, it was a 50-50 chance that something would end up on the shirt. And so he kept an extra shirt, knowing that at least once a week he would have to use it. We think, what, what is this oil running down on your head, on your beard? It's the anointing ceremony coronating or anointing Aaron as the high priest. Now, in the ancient Israel, when they first were brought out as the people of God in Exodus, it was when God established himself as their God and they were his people. In order to set up the relationship, they anointed Aaron as high priest of Israel. It was like he was the king, but he was also the key connection to their worship with God. So it was a sacred and amazing ceremony, and it was a high point for Israel saying, this is a great time in our nation. It's the equivalent of like a coronation of a king or an inauguration day, but it would be like the inauguration of George Washington, the first ever president. This is an amazing thing. It's a powerful thing. It is a sacred thing. Eugene Peterson, in his book on these psalms, suggests that this is part of how God wants us to think about one another. To regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ like you see the sacredness of a high priest. He writes, when we see each other as God's anointed, our relationships are profoundly affected. When you see your brother or sister as somebody who is set apart and called and anointed by God, it's hard to just use or mistreat them. He goes on to describe what brothers living in unity is like. It's not just like oil running down on Aaron. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Again, it's sort of lost on us, right? But to sum it up quickly, the Hermon was the highest mountain in the area. It was filled with dew enough that it was actually part of what would uh, cause plants and fruit trees to flourish near its ground. And it's saying that the dew of Hermon spreading all the way to Jerusalem, to Zion, so that the city of God is also flourishing, also fruitful. So the description there is, is of being refreshed, something that is absolutely needed. The dew was needed in that ancient and arid world. And so you think about being refreshed as, as needing sleep at the end of a hard day. I've never been a good sleeper. I wake up multiple times in the night. But during the one summer when I was leading wilderness trips in the Adirondacks, carrying around 60-pound backpacks, marching miles a day, dealing with high school kids, I would get to the end of the day and sleep on a mat, and there were mosquitoes everywhere, and I, there were rocks under my back, and I fell sound asleep because I was exhausted. I needed to be refreshed. The psalmist is saying, the gift of good relationships is like a perfect rest at the end of a long day. And then the phrasing there at the very end is, there, there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. You want the fruitful and flourishing life? You want life to the full? It's not found in the perfect career. It's not found in, in establishing yourself in this world. It's found in deep and meaningful relationships. That's the place of fruitfulness and flourishing. 
and it is a taste of heaven. Now, the psalmist is talking about this pilgrimage time that they went to Jerusalem, but he's also talking about something we completely miss, and that's in the ancient world, you did not just live with mother and father and siblings. The ancient world was a three-generation family. If you were married and had kids, your parents were nearby, living on the same compound probably. And the extended family existed in such a way that all of your cousins, your aunts and uncles and and nephews were all within a couple of houses of you. And beyond that, the village you lived in, you were probably related to everybody at some level. Meaning this, there was not a place you went on a daily basis that you didn't know every single person you saw and know them pretty well. And there was not a place you went on a given day where you were not already known, fully known. There was relational breadth and depth from years of being together and deeply connected that enabled every person to have a level of openness and trust and assurance of who they are and where they fit in in a way that we can't even conceive of. I don't know if any of you grew up next to your cousins or nearby interacting with them, but I've observed this with my own kids is that they have had a lot of interaction with their cousins, and cousins are great because they are like friends, not like your actual siblings, but they're also like siblings, not like your actual friends, which means you can have a lot of fun with them and be completely open with them. With your cousins, you're not afraid to wake up in the morning and have them see you with your hair all matted. You're not afraid to look silly in front of your cousins, and yet you can enjoy some of the best parts of life with your cousins. That's the world that the psalmist is talking about. What would it look like to live with a wider breadth of people, dozens and dozens of people who were like your closest cousins? And think about this. In the world of Psalm 133, being single, if you were a single person, did not restrict your social connectedness or your relational fulfillment. You received all the benefits of being connected to others and all the obligations of being connected to others were placed on you, whether you were married and had kids or not. If you were single in that ancient world but lived within the matrix of those friendships and family, you were never alone, you knew you were loved, you were absolutely needed as part of the community, you were integral to everyone else's lives, and you knew it, which meant your identity and your calling were clear. That's so far from what it's like to live as a single person in our world today. Who of you lives near some, don't raise your hand, okay? Who lives near some of your extended family? Probably some of you do, right? I do. But who of you lives near every single member of your extended family? The ancient world that's being assumed in this psalm is not just every one of your single family live in the D.C. area, it's that every one of your extended family live on the same street as you. Your brother and sisters live in the houses next to you. Your parents are in the house over. Your in-laws are like two streets down. There's a world of knowing and being known that we can't even conceive of. 
but it was a part of stepping into life to the full, deep and interwoven relationships. And we can't recreate it. But in the New Testament, Jesus redraws family around him, right? The, the, the people come to him and say, hey, Jesus, your brother and your mom are outside. They think you're crazy. They're outside. Do you want to go talk to them? And Jesus says, who are my mother and brother and sisters? It's whoever follows me. That was absolutely radical. Paul goes on to say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Gina Delfonso, who I'm going to bring up a little bit later, is in our church and she wrote a book. And in that she wrote this. In the New Testament, God's building a church, not a nation. We are united not by bonds of blood, but by the gospel. Families are still important, but they're not everything. Spiritual connection matters even more. In Christ, it's not blood or marriage or proximity alone that develops family. It's faith in Christ. And that's why the church and every local church is meant to be the new extended family. We're called to be a village of those who are in Christ. We put that down in our vision and values. We talk about our vision and values as being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. That piece of being an extended family is always going to be a work in progress, but we put it down because we want it to be central to who we are aiming to be. That we would love one another, enjoy life together, fun, caring, deepened relationships, recognizing that there's a diversity of people, a diversity of ages, of social settings, but we're called to live in relationship with one another, extending grace and forgiveness and joy and mercy. To be realistic, we're all going to have different levels of affinity and closeness with one another, but within a church, all of us should be able to find a place to be known and to know others, to care for and be cared for. So the question is, hypothetically, can a local church, which basically means can you and I, can we, develop the sort of relationships, friendships, fellowship, where no one lacks grandparents, even if their grandparents aren't alive anymore? Where no childless couple lacks kids because they see that the children in this community are their kids? Where anybody who is an only child doesn't feel like they lack siblings because they have brothers and sisters. Where a single person or a widower or a bachelor believes he has teammates, people fighting with him, cheering him on. And where those of us in nuclear families don't define family by just the five of us that any nuclear family is not a closed unit. You know, it's part of why we do some of the things we do here at Christ Church Vienna. You recognize that we gather together on Sundays, and all of us are together, and there's various numbers of a couple hundred and up and down on a given week, but if all you do is just stay in that hundreds, it's not going to be enough. And it's recognizing that within that, we actually do some things that are intentional. You know that the kids are in for the first part of the service, 
and then they come back towards the end. And that's partly because we want all of us to see those kids as our kids. That's why that prayer that we pray is part of it. We try to have as many small groups as we can that are integrated, men and women, different ages, different stages of life, recognizing that's not always gonna be possible, but part of our goal is to interweave people more deeply and wider. And ultimately, what we want to, people in this church to recognize is Sunday morning alone is not enough. You are called into deeper and wider relationships, and a Sunday morning is not enough. Even a small group during the fall or the spring is not enough. Church programs, even the perfect church programs, can't get us to where we need to go, which is friendship. That's it. Making friends with people and then continuing to make friends with people. We talk about wanting maturity in life, that you want to grow spiritually, you want fulfillment in life. We need friendships. And it's harder and harder in our culture today to cultivate those. We need to learn to need each other. But of course, there's challenges to this. Modern life is the, is, is the first challenge. The first challenge is that we are transient and individualistic. So of course, no one actually lives near all their extended family. You don't all live on the same street, right? Over the past 50, 70 years, the church has over-focused on the nuclear family so that if you have a, a, a marriage and kids, you're good. And if you don't, you should get married. As opposed to seeing that we need wider relationships, that your marriage is not enough of a relationship. You need other people you're tied to. Your kids are not enough. You need other people that they're tied to and that you're tied to. But our problem is in our modern culture, we overvalue privacy and autonomy. And so we are afraid to push out and unwilling to commit. And that's why we, at least as Christians, need to realize the necessity of wider and deeper community over all other priorities. Can I have my four volunteers that I picked come on up? I guess that doesn't really work, but... Um, I've used this imagery before, and so if you were here four years ago, you saw this. I'm assuming most of you don't remember it, so it'll be fine, um, and if you do, that's all right. Can I have uh, my two uh, strapping young men over here, my two ladies over here? Okay, so here's the idea of, of community, of needing relationships. It's that we are not meant to be alone. So girls, can you take either side of this paper? One of you grab the yellow, and the other grab the white. Okay, don't do anything yet. And this is five pieces of paper interwoven. Can you pull it apart? How hard was that? No, not hard, okay. Now can you do it with this magazine? These two magazines are woven together, and each one has 100 pages, so you hold on to that side and you hold on to that side, and go ahead and pull it apart. Now go ahead and start pulling it apart. So is it harder to pull apart? Okay, this is only, this is less than 200 pages fewer than the number of people in this room, interwoven in such a way, just simply because they're laying on each other in friction that you cannot pull them apart very easily. If you did it with a phone book with 200 pages on each side, 400 total, you could not pull it apart. It's too hard to do that. But most of us live as if five pages is enough when we're called to be far wider. Okay, boys, I'm gonna um, invite you now to um, pull this rope um, see if you can pull the rope apart. 
It's just right there. Just go ahead. Now, rip it in half. No, no, go ahead. Rip it in half. Okay, so that's too hard. Okay, let's try just a little bit of the rope. Watch your fingers. You don't actually rip your fingers. Okay, so you could do that. Now, why can't you do this? It's too hard, right? Okay, so that's like five, ten strands of little rope, and this is maybe 500 strands of that same rope. You interweave more, and it's much harder to rip apart, right? Okay, you guys can go head down. Thank you so much. It's a very simple illustration to remind us that if you think you have enough deep friendships, you probably don't. And you see this when crisis hits somebody. The more isolated and autonomous a person is, the more likely they are to crash hard. One of the first questions that you ask, that I ask when somebody is dealing with a crisis is who else is in your life? How many other people are there to walk with you in this? And this means that there's a calling for us to recognize that being married, just having a good spouse is not enough. Just you and your two kids is not enough. We need more. And so it involves thinking through what steps might I need to take in order to deepen and widen my friendships. One is stay longer in a place, which is hard in our transient culture because we will choose career over relationship. A second is get together regularly, not because it's been ordered by the church or because it's convenient, but because you're committed to other people and seeing them again and again and again and again over time. So that you can get to the point where you integrate others besides your nuclear family in bigger decisions in life. Stanley Harawas makes this, this bold pronouncement he says that everyone in the church should be open about how much money they make. You guys want to do that? Think about how scary that is. It's absolutely threatening. But he said in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira were killed for not revealing how much they had made. But that we bristle against even just the thought of that. I do. Commitment and vulnerability are incredibly hard for us, but they're absolutely necessary for deep friendship. And that's why we need the gospel. The second challenge to us being able to develop deeper brotherly and sisterly relationships is that we have a gospel-lessness. Even those of us who believe struggle with our sinful side and unbelief itself. Did you know that everyone in here is a sinner? When two people get married, you're marrying two sinful people. When they have kids, the kids are sinful people. And it's very hard for even people in a marriage or a close family to love each other well, let alone pushing outside to friendships beyond that. We are all selfish people. I want to get what I want, I want to do what I want, and I want total autonomy. You don't have a say on who I am and what I do. And the result of our selfishness is that other people become either a commodity, how can I get something out of you, or competition. The Allen brothers were three boys that were near age. They were within like a year or two of each other, all three of them. When they were teenagers, according to one of the Allen brothers, 
Mom had to make two whole roast chickens when she made a meal, an equivalence of that on other nights. The way that the meals went were everyone had food served to them. And everyone was able to eat when mom and dad were actually seated. And then no one was allowed seconds until mom and dad were finished eating. Now, mom barely ate much. She just ate what she did. And, but dad intentionally took his time eating. And the teenage boys would watch dad waiting for him to be done because he had first choice of seconds. Pretty much every night, dad would not actually take seconds, but he would prolong his first plate as long as he could. And then when he was done, he would say, okay, I'm done, and set down his fork and knife. At which point, the three boys jumped on the carcasses and tore apart everything they could possibly get their hands on because at that point, it was first come, first serve. Their brothers that they had played with so lovingly earlier in the day became absolute competition for survival. We do the same thing with other people. Because we're so concerned about our identity, our life, our well-being, our needs, everyone else becomes competition for that little bit of chicken. And we're full of pride. You know how we, I know we're full of pride? Just look at how you react to other people. If you're ever defensive or hurt by somebody else, it's because of pride. If you ever walk into a room and feel a need to prove yourself, to prove your worth, your value, it's because of pride. If you fear embarrassment, if you have that kind of deep, quick, like, oh, what if this happens and everyone finds out, that fear of embarrassment is pride. Do you evaluate who you're going to associate with on the basis of what they can provide you? If they can benefit you, advance your career, help you to look good. And if not, you kind of just dismiss them as quickly as possible. It's pride. And it really means we don't really believe the gospel. We are insecure people, desperately scratching for our own identity on our own and trying to steal it from others rather than finding it in Christ. Richard Lovelace, a theologian, wrote this, below the surface, many of us Christians are living deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. We say we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but we draw our acceptance before God on the basis of how we are feeling or doing. We fail to trust Christ fully for our acceptance. When we don't find our identity and hope in Christ, and instead put it in our career, or our looks, or our... When we aren't fully sure that we're loved by Christ, and we seek it in a spouse, or the approval of our friends. When we are not finding our identity and our love in Christ, then we must get it from others. And so we will use them, or avoid them, or smother them. It's very easy for a spouse or your kids to become your savior. Or thinking that if you had a spouse or a kids, everything would be good. The gospel breaks us down and builds us up. 
It humbles us because it says your talents, your looks, your achievements, even your goodness are not enough. You fall short and deserve God's wrath. And that is incredibly humbling. There's no grounds for superiority or pride. But it also assures us that you are saved by grace. You cannot lose what Christ has given you. And only from that place of assurance can you be vulnerable and even generous because Christ was vulnerable and generous with you. When we fully believe and apply the gospel, we are finally free and empowered to love deeply and widely, to experience the good, pleasant, sacred, refreshing, blessed relationships that the psalmist is talking about. And relationships like this are part of our calling. In John 17, in his final prayer for his disciples, Jesus says this. He prays that they, the disciples, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you, the Father, sent me the Son and loved them even as you loved me. You see, our calling to love one another, our unity and brother and sisterliness in Christ is part of our missional calling and vocation. It's part of how people see and experience the God that loved us. As we love one another, they say, oh, now I get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I see it in you guys. And it's also what this world is desperately looking for and needs. We are a world of people that are alone and desperately in need of relationships. And if we can't produce it in the church, if people can't see it here, then there is no hope. But in Christ, we can cultivate the sort of friendships and relationships that the world is desperate for. It's what we have in Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, you have called us into relationship with one another, and that's not easy. But you love us, and you've brought us in. Help us to see and feel and apply that gospel so that we might experience your grace be able to extend it to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.